you can change your identity and changing your identity really has to do with changing your beliefs, changing your thoughts, changing your feelings, changing your filters through which you look at the world and also your filters through which you look at yourself and what you believe to be true about yourself. Like we're belief confirmation machines is what we are. We put on our belief glasses that are tinted with our beliefs and we just see everything according to what we believe, not understanding that most of what we believe is probably bullshit. Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better. Start now. Let's go. You're on air with Ella, and I am joined today by the one, the only, Mr. Sean Croxton. Hey, Sean. What's up, Ella? How's it going? Uh, Sean, I don't know if you know this. We've hung out before. It's been a long time because it was in the before times, but Mm -hmm. you have been my mentor now for eight years. I mean, Mm -hmm. you didn't necessarily know that, but you have been. So thanks. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm really grateful to be your mentor without knowing I was your mentor. It's dope. (laughs) Sean's going to introduce himself, (laughs) but you've been around since God was a boy and you started on YouTube and you had a podcast following that. I think your YouTube was underground wellness, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes. Okay. And then that was the first pod. Yeah. Yes. UW radio underground wellness radio. Yeah. But that was back when everybody and their mother didn't have a podcast. Unlike today where there are 50 million launched per week, I think. Yeah. Like 50 million, something like that. Everybody's got one. Yeah. How many podcasts have you launched now at this point? Underground Wellness Radio, the Sean Croxton Sessions, the Quote of the Day Show and the Mindset Coach. So four podcasts. The Mindset Coach is your most recent, and that Mm -hmm. is fantastic. And one of the reasons we're talking today is just because you have helped me so much, both in the work that we've done together and the work that you've put out into the world to just address things like things that have almost become hackneyed phrases at this point, but self-sabotage, self-limiting beliefs, managing your fear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are things that everybody and their mother with a podcast is talking about, but Sean, what you do differently than everybody else is you talk about specifically what this is and how to manage it, how to manage it rather to achieve what you want to achieve. And if you're any testimony to that fact, it works. So before we get into it, let me ask you this. How would you introduce yourself? Yes. Yeah, so, so what I do right now, uh, I used to do, I used to do money mindset. So helping people change their relationship with money. Um, so I pivoted to helping coaches, you know, discover their mindset blocks, not only discover them, but get past their mindset blocks so they can be seen and be heard and stand out in a crowded niche because there are so many coaches out there who are taking like marketing courses well number one they're getting certified they're spending thousands of dollars on their certification they're like i'm going to become a coach and i'm going to build a business and i'm going to work from home and their family's like no you're not and they're like yes i am and then they go and sign up for some $2,500 marketing course, or they hire a coach for $15,000 or they get into a mastermind group for five figures and it doesn't work you know, I, I took a course, it might've been three years ago. And, um, you know, when I was watching the first module, it was a fantastic course, by the way. And I'm watching the first module. And the guy said that the teacher of the course, he said something like this course has produced, it might've been 15 millionaires. And I was like, Oh, that's great. 
and it might have been 230 something six figure earners. And I was like, wow, amazing. And then he said, over 10,500 people have taken this course. And I go, where's my calculator? Hmm. And so I started doing my, my, my calculations. And I think it came out to 2.4% was the success rate, assuming that the average student wanted to earn at least $100,000 from taking that course. And as I thought about that, I was going, you know what, that's actually very true. Like, I know a lot of people who have invested in online marketing courses that did absolutely nothing with them. Like there was all that inspiration. They're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then there was the information that was in the course. But the hard part is actually doing the actions, you know, but it ends up, I'm going to start next month or I got to do this thing first. I got to take this other course. I got to get this other certification. I got to get this book. And it's like, none of that is getting you closer to taking action and building your brand online. And so, um, I, I did a lot of research around this, like trying to figure out like what makes that 2.4% of people who are successful in these courses different than the rest. And I was able to find some very interesting things. And um, maybe we'll talk more about that today. What I find interesting about your work is actually industry agnostic, if you will. It's universal principles. So somebody listening to this who has no intention of becoming a coach online or in any right. other uh, medium for that matter, still might struggle with pulling the trigger on the thing they want to do. And it's so funny because you, you and I were talking before we started recording and I said, I really want to talk about habit change. You know, I'm obsessed with the fact that we know what to do half the time and we just don't do it. Or like you said, we arm ourselves with all the things and then we don't do the do. And you and I were debating whether or not you're an expert in habit change. And here's, I'm going to posit that you are. And here's why any achievement that you're striving for requires in really simplistic terms, it requires a mindset shift. It requires that you manage the fear that necessarily comes up. And then it requires action. Those three things are the equation, the math that equals achievement. So I tend to look at it in the language that I use is habit change. You use different language, but I think we're talking about the same thing. And I don't know anyone better to speak about mind sh mindset shifts and fear management than you, because if you can nail both of those things or get a grip on them or become fluent in the language of mindset and fear management, then I think it becomes infinitely easier to take the action. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we agree on that. So let's talk about mindset shifts for any habit change. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard? What is our brain doing? Why is it so hard to start something new or to take the leap or like start doing the thing? And I know that's a very big question, but what comes to mind to you first when I ask you that? Because you deal with it all the time. What comes to mind to me is like water flowing through a river or through a brook or whatever, right? And the water is flowing toward least resistance. And it's like the same flow of water over and over and over again. It's been flowing like this for years, decades. And that's how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired like the same way. It's like the same neural pathways firing over and over and over and over and over again, the same way, right? Essentially what we're trying to do when we try to change habits or create a new action is we're telling that river, hey, instead of going south to north, would you mind going, or north to south, would you mind going from north to south to kind of east now? And that's what we're doing. And it's really, really challenging to do that. 
you know, we have to remember that from birth to about the age of seven, our brains are being programmed, they're being coded, they're being wired as we're learning how to survive in the world. So between those ages, we're learning from the various authority figures in our lives, also for probably from the media, also maybe from the preachers and teachers and brothers and sisters, like we're learning what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what to believe, what not to believe. Um, are you able? Are you capable? Are you worthy? Are you deserving? Or are you not? You're learning how to stay in the tribe. You're learning how to get kicked out of the tribe. You're learning what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, right? And so these programs are getting wired into your brain. And essentially, you're going on autopilot. Your habits, your actions, your decisions are just completely unconscious and habitual. And that's the pathways going and going and going. Now, you want to try to do something new. Your brain goes, wait, this is unfamiliar. It's unknown. It's uncertain. It's not predictable. It's not automatic. Why are we doing this? It's like an assembly line that's been, you know, going, making the same car for 40 years. Same guy showing up every day. And then you show up one day, the boss shows up one day and says, hey, everybody stop. We're going to do it a different way today. And everybody goes, hold on, wait up, wait up. This doesn't make any sense. Like we've been doing the same thing for 40 years and you want us to do something different? No. So that's what's going on in the brain. And that's why we freak out when we're trying to do something new. And then what we end up doing is we go, well, since I'm not making the change, then there's something that must be wrong with me. And now we've got a whole other set of issues because now we're disappointed in ourselves. And so, you know, what I teach is essentially gives people a lot of awareness so they can go, oh, my brain's freaking out because we're going into unknown territory. My amygdala is freaking out. My conflict detector is turning on. My boss brain is shutting down and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, also helping people to, to manage that when it comes up for them. Something you've said in the past is that fear is not only normal for some of the reasons you've just explained, but it's actually useful. If you're uncomfortable, it means your brain is working. So the amygdala is doing its thing. But how can you reframe that? Or what's another way to think of it in terms of it's actually either fuel or a sign that you're moving in the right direction? So in short, fear may be normal, but how is it useful? Well, fear itself, just, just from a basic level, you know, people are trying to get rid of fear. They, they want to wake up one day and be like, I don't have any fear anymore. That's never going to happen. I mean, imagine what you would do if you had no fear. You do really stupid stuff. You'd be like, I'm going to jump off the top of this building and see what happens. I'm going to walk out into the street without looking both ways. I'm going to say this really terrible thing to my boss today. And so you need fear. Also, that fear that comes up, that inner critic that comes up and says, you can't do this. This is, you're not smart enough to do this. Whenever you try to make a change, I think a lot of people need to realize that that's 100% normal. And what I mean by that is, you know, number one, your brain is freaking out because what you're doing is different, but also there's a part of your brain called the left frontal cortex, like right behind your forehead on the left side. That's the commitment center of your brain. And so if you want to be committed to some type of change, then you need that part of your brain to turn on. And the interesting thing about the activation of the left frontal cortex is it requires what's called cognitive dissonance. And so cognitive dissonance is that earthquake that you feel whenever you want to make some type of change. Now, most people say, I'm feeling the earthquake. I'm having the negative self-talk. Maybe I should quit. Like, no. You just got to keep going through it and understand that that's part of the game. 
that anybody who's ever made any change in their lives has felt the same thing. Talk more about the commitment center, because that sounds like it's not only useful, but necessary if you're trying to make some sort of quantum leap. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's necessary. But here's the funny thing about commitment and activating that left frontal cortex, the commitment center. A lot of people want to make that quantum leap overnight. Take massive action. Take massive action. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. And also a lot of, in order to change, you have to make a decision to change. But a lot of people won't make the decision to change unless they feel committed to the change. And that's actually backwards. You make the decision first and then your brain will gradually and eventually commit to it. Now, what I mean by that, let's say, for example, you want to build an, an online business, we'll say, and right now you're working at a job that you really hate. Well, for your brain to, to present your brain with information, we're going to build a six-figure or seven-figure online business and we're going to quit our job. Brain goes, no, I'm cool. That seems really unfamiliar. That seems really insecure. And I'm really loving the security that we've got right now. It sounds like really unpredictable. And I love the fact that I know exactly what's going to happen Monday through Friday of every week. So what you got to do here is make a micro decision. See, number one, people just don't like making decisions, period, right? The word decide comes from the Latin word for to cut off. And so when you make a decision, you cut yourself off from all other options and all other possibilities. And it freaks people out. It's like trying to order something off the Cheesecake Factory menu. You're like, oh my God, there's 25 pages. I got to pick one thing. Like <laughs> That's like a microcosm of life. Now you make a micro decision. You say, you know what? I'm going to get a Instagram business account today. And then you take that micro action. And then your brain says, you know what? That felt pretty good. I like that. And then the light starts to flicker on that left frontal cortex. And then a few days later, you say, you know what? I'm going to post something on this Instagram account. And then you post it, micro action. And then your brain's reward center says, that felt pretty good too. And the light starts to turn on a little bit more in the commitment center. And then the next day you say, you know what? I'm going to go to godaddy.com and buy the domain name for my, my business. Same thing. It turns into a cycle. And so as you take the, make the micro decision and take the micro action, you get the reward. And that left part of your, your brain starts to be like, okay, we're getting more into this. We're getting more committed, but people want to feel that super committed feeling before they take any action at all. And that's why, you know, in my space that I work in, we've got coaches who have certifications, but they're in year number three without picking a niche. Cause like, I need to feel fully committed to this niche before I pick it. Like, nah, dude, that's not how it works. I have said before, and I did not invent this phrase. Somebody else said it first. Motivation is on the other side of starting. <laughs> I yeah. get truly motivated when I prove to myself that I can. And that's the only thing, honestly, that's ever kept me going. So it's momentum, not yeah. motivation. But I have found, Sean, I'm so curious as to your take on this. I have found that identity plays a huge role in this process. Can you describe a way in your life where you had to rethink who you were to get where you wanted to go? What did that look like in your life when you had to wrestle with who you are versus who you wanted to be? That's a really interesting question. I don't think I had an, an identity shift. And what I mean by that, and this is part of the work that I do in, in looking at the, the successful entrepreneurs versus everybody else is like, this is how I was raised. I was raised to believe that I can do anything I put my mind to. 
I saw my father who was an entrepreneur. He sold shoes during the week at Macy's, but on the weekend he sold random stuff at the swap meet. And so for me, like I've always been an entrepreneur. Like since I was a child, I would sell baseball cards and comic books and random stuff at the swap meet. And I was always selling things and always had multiple jobs. And so for me, there was really no identity shift. And, you know, that's part of the work that I do because, you know, the, the main thesis of what I teach is that, again, successful entrepreneurs are different than everybody else. You know, the subconscious mind is what gives direction to your life. And the subconscious mind, like during that birth to age seven period, most entrepreneurs, they had seeds planted in their subconscious mind that everybody else didn't. Many, but not all successful entrepreneurs had uh, doting parents, or at least one who was like, you're so special. You can do whatever you want to do with life. Like a, a lot of people didn't have that. They typically had one self-employed parent. They often had uh, permissive parents who encourage them to take risks without a threat of punishment, you know, to go out there. It's, they didn't have helicopter parents. There's a really interesting story about Virgin guy. Branson? Virgin. Branson, yeah. And, and I'm going to totally botch this story and people are going to hear this. And he won't, like, he won't know. He hasn't listened in a while. <laughs> well, people are going to hear this story and be like, oh my God, I would never do this. And this is a very extreme example. But I think when he was eight years old, his mom drove him, I think it was 25 miles away from home with his bicycle, a map and a sandwich. And she drove off and said, find your way home. What was this ranger training? What the hell? But here's the thing, like we would think that that's like a terrible thing to do to, to a child. And I wouldn't do that if I had children. But, you know, what he said is when he got home, he felt like he can do anything. And a lot of us, like as children, don't have those opportunities to develop that kind of independence, develop that type of, um, you know, tendencies to take risk. Like we're, we're helicopter parented. We're not allowed to make our own decisions. We're not allowed to be independent. We're not allowed to do anything without being watched by someone. I'll give you a couple more. Uh, successful entrepreneurs often uh, experience a, a death in their family early in life. And what that shows them is like, this can end at any time. Let's, let's go. They create some type of urgency where life doesn't last forever. There's many more. They're, they're typically firstborn as well. Not all the time, but typically firstborn because the firstborn uh, takes on leadership qualities. They have to lead all of the other siblings. And so these are early imprints that many successful entrepreneurs have, which create the qualities that they have of, you know, being personally responsible, of being problem solvers, of being, um, having greater risk tendencies, um, on and on. And so I, I believe, firmly believe that entrepreneurs, like if you were to crack open the brain of a successful entrepreneur and you crack open the brain of a not so successful entrepreneur and you were able to look at the wiring, they're wired completely differently. And that's where like neuroplasticity comes in, where it's like, you can change your brain. But we have to remember one thing that people forget, and sorry, this whole tangent I'm going on, but um, we have to remember that, you know, the creative process or the creative formula is be, do, have. And the being part is like, you know, your, your thinking, your feeling, your wiring, your programming, who you are. But where we tend to focus, we skip that part and we just get all kinds of advice on what to do. And so we can have this. But you're not going to do it if you're not changing your way of being, if you're not changing your way of thinking and feeling. 
And so that's why people take online programs and certifications and never finish or never take action is because they're only getting instruction, instruction on the doing. But here's the thing, the people who are teaching them this stuff, they were already like being a successful entrepreneur even before they were successful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, and so Marie Forleo, like, I love Marie. She's great. But what is Marie's story? My mom told me everything is figure outable. Like, just imagine if you're an entrepreneur and you walk through your life, believing that everything is figure outable, your whole life would be different, but not everybody got that messaging. Right. To me, you've just underscored the power identity plays. You didn't necessarily have to undergo a shift because you were gifted that experience. So let me ask you this. Am I hearing you say that if somebody wasn't gifted that experience, they're screwed. Don't try. It's not innate in you. Or is your point more that the awareness and then the education can help break down those patterns that were built in our early childhood? Or is it hopeless? Oh, it's definitely not hopeless. Your brain was wired to be rewired. Files and folders in your brain were designed to be deleted and replaced. There's a thing called neuroplasticity. Is neuroplasticity easy? No, because neuroplasticity is like in this tug of war with your habits, the things you've been doing forever. Your brain's like, wait, you're trying to change this. And so you can change your identity. And changing your identity really has to do with changing your beliefs changing your thoughts, changing your feelings, changing your filters through which you look at the world and also your filters through which you look at yourself and what you believe to be true about yourself. Like we're belief confirmation machines is what we are. We have beliefs we learned, we learned a long time ago. We put on our belief glasses that are tinted with our beliefs and we just see everything according to what we believe, not understanding that most of what we believe is probably bullshit. Is it a belief or is it a fact? A belief and a fact are two very completely different things. And, you know, because a lot of these beliefs we learned, you know, before the age of seven or eight, a lot of them are out of our consciousness. So it really takes some introspection. It really takes some like looking back at our early childhood to be able to like figure out like, okay, what did I learn during that period of time? And how is it influencing my perception of the world, my perception of myself and my actions and decisions in the present? And when we can do that, like, for example, you know, I work with, again, mostly coaches and they want to make money, but they have so many limiting beliefs around money. And so it's like, if you want to make money, but you kind of hate money and you kind of hate people who have money and you don't believe that you're capable or worthy or deserving of making more money, then you're probably not going to make more money. You're going to figure out a way to push it away from you. I think one of the most important questions is how does this belief serve me? Oh, you know what? I want to go back to a previous question. If this belief were somewhat true, can I choose to be the exception? And of course, the answer is yes. Can you be a rich, generous person? Absolutely, you can. No one said that because you're going to make more money, you have to be this greedy, miserable person. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? But getting to the previous question I was talking about, um, how does this belief protect me? Now, that's an interesting question, because that belief actually protects people from moving forward in their lives. It keeps people from changing. It keeps people from starting a business. It keeps people from making more money, right? Because they're, they're essentially saying, like, if I don't have this belief, I'm actually going to have to do something, you know? Yeah, that raises the issue of self-sabotage for me, it's all of the things that you're talking about, because if... I don't accept this to be true, this limiting belief, then I'm actually going to have to do something, 
where does what how do you define self-sabotage because that's what happens a lot of time in that important juncture and how do you tell people to negotiate their way around it self-sabotage is when you want to do something and you don't do it you know period point blank that's what it is um you know i, I you know i want to talk about something when it comes to self-sabotage because this is something that's really overlooked and i wish more people in the self-help personal development space would talk about this and it's called, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea from the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And, you know, when I ask most people, like, how are you going to feel when you have the business you want or when you have the amount of money that you want? They say, I'm going to feel free. Like they want freedom is what they're looking for, right? That's the American dream, right? Freedom, that's what we have. And the interesting thing about freedom is we want freedom, but we really don't want freedom. And Kierkegaard said that, Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And I want to go back to the Cheesecake Factory thing I said earlier. You know, the Cheesecake Factory menu is 24 pages, I believe. And so when somebody goes to the Cheesecake Factory and they sit down, they open up that menu, they kind of freak out because they're like, you know, there's so many things to, to choose. I, 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 don't, I don't know which one I want. Like if I pick this one, what if I'm wrong, right? Like, I, can I just send it back if I don't like it? Or, and so what do they end up doing? They end up asking the server. And then the person will just choose whatever the server says is good. That way, when the dish comes out and the person doesn't like it, it wasn't their fault. It's somebody else's fault. That's a microcosm of life. We have to think about the infinite menu of possibilities for your life. And it's your job as an adult to decide on one that causes anxiety. You're like, oh my God, I'm deciding on one. I can only pick one of the 31 flavors of Baskin Robbins. You know what I'm saying? I can only have one. And here's what, what happens when we're pursuing freedom. We're like, you know, here's where you are right now. And here's where you want to go. When you start moving toward that freedom, and you start making changes in your life, and you start doing different things, you're going to feel anxiety. You have to feel anxiety because everything you're doing is unfamiliar. It's unknown. It's uncertain, right? But the problem in our society is this. We have so pathologized anxiety and made it this terrible thing that nobody's supposed to feel that people are unwilling to take that journey because they're like, nope, anxiety bad. And if I'm feeling anxiety, I should stop and I should go back. And when they stop and they go back, there is a sense of relief. There's like, ah, oh, pressure's gone. Anxiety's gone. But here's the thing. And I've done this over and over and over again throughout life. We go, oh, I feel so much better. Because remember, your brain doesn't only produce dopamine because something's pleasurable. Your brain also produces dopamine when you avoid pain. So when you avoid the anxiety, your brain goes, ah, oh, dopamine. Cool. We're feeling better now. Good, but now you're back at point A and you're starting to feel a little bit of despair because you're going, wait, I'm back at point A. I'm not feeling the anxiety anymore, but there's still that thing that I really want. So let's go try this again. And then you go and you do it again. You start to feel the anxiety and your brain has that association of anxiety bad. And you're like, you know what? Let's go ahead and quit again. You go back, you start to feel better. And then you go, oh, now I'm starting to feel a little disappointed in myself because there's this thing I really wanted. And you go and you do it again. You're, you're going, you're doing the things and you're failing and you're, you're doing well, then you make a mistake and you're like, no, it doesn't feel right. And then you go back to point A again and you're feeling better. But now you're not feeling despair anymore. Now you're not just feeling disappointment. Now you're feeling a little bit of depression 
because you're like, man, I want my life to change, but it doesn't. So the choice that we have to make, this is the most important choice that any of us can make is anxiety or depression. Like which one is it going to be? If you want your life to change, you're going to feel anxiety. I feel anxiety all the time. I felt anxiety before we came on this podcast interview. I feel anxiety when I was recording my podcast yesterday. I felt anxiety yesterday when I was helping people to audit their websites. I'm going to feel it later on today in about an hour when I do it again. I'm always feeling anxiety, but instead of me looking at it as some terrible thing, I'm like, anxiety is one of the requirements for change. Doesn't need my form of anxiety. Maybe somebody else is different, does not need to be medicated. My form of anxiety is a sign and an indication that I'm growing. And that's what I accept. But people freak out because, and I think there's a lot of freedom in just being like, oh, that anxiety is normal. Why didn't somebody tell me? It's like puberty. Like imagine going through puberty and nobody told you what was going to happen. You were all by yourself. You'd be like, oh my God, what is happening to me? What is happening to me? And somebody said, oh yeah, that's just normal. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Just that little tweak in your perception makes a huge difference. On just hearing you say, this is so funny to me because just hearing you say, I felt anxiety before we started today and you felt anxiety and you went, you named some other examples. And I was like, we don't ever say that. I feel anxiety every time I turn on this microphone. Yeah. And then when I, life has forced me to take two hiatus, hiati, hiatuses. Hiatuses. <laughs> hiati sounds better. Life has forced me to take two hiatuses. And I had extreme anxiety about coming back and showing up and being accepted and saying, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but I'm here and I'm here for real. And I think we need to say more. It was so powerful for you just to say that. Why is fear and anxiety so isolating when we're literally all going through it every day? Yeah, I mean, we're all going through it every day, but nobody talks about the fact that fear has a good side. And very few people are talking about the fact that every successful person you know is living with anxiety every day. It's just, it's just part of life. If you're trying, your brain, again, doing the same stuff over and over and over again, whenever it's going to change, whenever you're going to change, you're going to feel anxiety. Accept it. You connected two other concepts that are personally important to me and that I value highly and I really want to call them out. You said one of the things that makes us uncomfortable with change, uncomfortable with freedom, and you didn't say this exactly, but it was implied, is the a level of accountability that is required to be truly free. So personal accountability is required in order to experience true freedom or in, in order to achieve anything. Now, why is that an uncomfortable concept sometimes? Honestly, I don't understand it. You know, one of the values we were raised with, my brother and I, was like personal responsibility. Like it's nobody else's fault. And it's interesting. There's a great book called um, How We Change by Ross Ellenhorn. And he talks about like where you are right now and where you want to go. And there's these three things that you're going to have to deal with along that journey. Number one is the aloneness because you are the captain of your own ship. A lot of you becoming successful, you can have a team working with you, but it really comes down to you. Number two is the anxiety, the existential anxiety that I was just talking about a minute ago. And number three is accountability. It's like the personal accountability, the personal responsibility of like, this is up to me. Nothing is anybody else's fault. 
you know, if something happens in my business, like for example, if um, Ian, my podcast editor, screws up and leaves something in that he wasn't supposed to, that's not Ian's fault. That's my fault because I didn't check the podcast, right? So it's a really interesting idea to me in our general society, how personal responsibility is a controversial thing, you know? It's like you as a human being, you have this thing called agency, which means that you have some control over the circumstances of your life. You can direct your life. Instead of waiting for somebody to save you, like it is on you to get uncomfortable and make a decision and be an adult and to change your own life. I, I, I cannot believe like, you know, it's one of my values. So when I post on Instagram, very seldom do I post on Instagram, but I run it through a filter of my highest values. And what are my highest values? Well, it's generosity, it's education, it's personal responsibility. Those are the three things I like to post about. And it, it boggles my mind how people can get so upset about any suggestion of being responsible for your own life. You cannot be successful in life if you don't take responsibility for your life. I'm going to link to a book that I think does this concept an enormous amount of justice. And that book is Maybe It's You. And I interviewed the author of that book and I will share that in the link. It's That's a really, really good resource. One of the things I like to talk about is the freedom that comes with accountability, but also the power that comes with accountability. So it's sort of flipping the script from a victim mentality and all of us have it in some area of our life and understanding that there's enormous power and freedom in taking responsibility. So that's probably a talk for another day, but I just appreciate you even scratching the surface on that. Okay. I want to ask you just two more questions. The first one is if this resonates, if our chat resonates with somebody today and you know, there's a stirring in their soul <laughs> and they want to start somewhere, what do you say to someone who says, okay, I recognize myself in a little bit of this, in a little bit of letting fear keep me small, or I'm playing small because I'm scared of what might happen if I play big. If this is resonating with anyone, Sean, where do you even suggest someone starts? Uh, you know, one thing is to break it down. So I kind of talked about this earlier, but if you got a big goal, you want to change your life, let's break it down to the smallest step. You know, there's a really good book I'm reading right now called The Gap and the Gain. And the premise of the book is that a lot of us measure ourselves by where we want to be, which is the gap versus the gain, which is measuring yourself from where you were before. You know, when you're measuring yourself in the gap, like where you want to be, I mean, you can, it doesn't feel good. Where do you want, it's always changing to, and when you get to where you want to be, it always changes to something else. And if you can just look at your progress. And, and, and what I mean by this is um, my philosophy on life is little by little, a little becomes a lot. And, you know, very seldom do I ever stare at the big goal. You know, I look at the big goal every once in a while and I'm like, okay, well, there it is. It's like looking at the top of a, a mountain when you're hiking. It's like, okay, that's where we got to go. But what I'm all about is breaking things down to the next step. What is the next step I need to take? Let me take that step. And then after I take that step, let's do the next step. And then let's do the next step. And then let's do the next step. And the thing is like, the time is going to pass anyway. We want it to, we're like, we're like the kid in the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? All right, no, no. <laughs> we got to get through this mile and then the next mile and the next mile. But, you know, if we keep doing this, we're going to get there at some point. Or 
we can sit here and whine and complain and wish we were there tomorrow and never take any action. And now two years have passed and you're like, I'm still in the same place. Well, if you would have done the little by littles over that last two years, you would have made so much progress. Like that's the, the maybe unique thing about me. I'm never in a hurry for success. I'm just, it's like that old Will Smith story, probably a bad example right now. But, you know, he talks about when his father, you know, had he and his brother, Will and his brother build the brick wall and took all summer. But the lesson that was learned is like, you don't build a brick wall overnight. You build the brick wall brick by brick. So I'm going to lay down this brick as perfectly as a brick can be laid. And over time, you'll have a wall. So start with step number one, get that reward juice, turn on the commitment center a little bit, and then go to step number two. Like that's the best way to do it, in my opinion. You're giving me karate kid vibes. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi, <laughs> Daniel Hey, Sean, where do you want people to find you? Because you, you activated a lot of commitment centers. <laughs> I'd like <laughs> them to know the best place to find you if they want more. Uh, you can go to seancroxton.com, jump on my email list. Um, there's a free ebook for you there called The Course Cure for coaches, um, experts, course creators as well, who have just been taking all of these courses, certifications and such, and haven't really made any progress in their businesses. I'm just showing them like what's going on from a mindset level. Also, check me out on your podcast player, The Quote of the Day Show, as well as Mindset Coach. Yeah, you're a dopamine hit every morning. So you've got the quote of the day show and now you've got mindset coach. If people need a little by little every day, those are two really good sources. Okay, I can't let you go. I have one more question. Okay. What is one thing that you are loving right now that you want to share with everybody? I'm loving my dog. He gets on my nerves sometimes, but I'm loving my dog. No, what? that is not a shareable resource. Oh, a shareable resource. Oh, my bad. I thought my dog was community property. I mean, we can have a gratitude moment for your dog. I've, wait, what's your dog's name? Kobe. Kobe. Okay. Yeah. So I'm loving The Gap and the Gain by Dan Sullivan and Ben Hardy. It's a very simple book, but I think it's a book that we should probably crack open every six months uh, because sometimes our brain can go, we're not there yet. Are we there yet? But again, it forgets like how far we've come and it just really changes your perception. I'm going to link to the Ellen Horn book, which I only read because you suggested it. And then the gap in the game, which is new to me. So that will get ordered. And then maybe it's you. Did, did you hate the Ellen Horn book, by the way? Hate it? No, uh -huh. I didn't hate it. Okay. A lot of people hate that book. They hate that book because it's very like confronting. It makes them really uncomfortable. It's like cilantro. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. Yeah, um, right. I got some really good concepts from it and I'm very happy to share it. And then you guys can tell us whether it's cilantro for you. Let us know. <laughs> Sean, thanks for your time. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for everything that you do. Thank you very much. Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and links at onairella.com. There's no with. It's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. And thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply... Awesome.